This is The Water Cooler. I'm your host, Joseph Harper. Each show we bring you real and imagined tales told by people from all walks of life. Our theme this episode is Neighbours. Ever think about how most of us don't really know our neighbours these days? It's kind of a sad thought, but one worth exploring. For better or worse, those interactions with the people next door can be really meaningful. We've got four Neighbours stories for you today involving a psychotic dad, a street without a street, a notorious LA apartment complex, and rural New Zealand bogans. A quick note before we start, this was told live and the language and themes might not be for everyone. Our speaker, Eli Orzasek, is an artist and journalist from Auckland. You might also know him as the author of several notable zines. Here's Eli's story. This is like a pretty harrowing story. It kind of ruined my life at the time. For a long time I couldn't even tell the story without my eye twitching. It might happen tonight, so watch out for that. But um, at the time of this incident, I was living rent-free in my grandmother's old house in Hearn Bay. Yep, I know, kind of spoilt brat type thing, but my neighbour's son from down the road was much more of a spoilt brat, and you'll hear why soon. So it was 2011, just a couple of weeks before the general election, and I was just finishing up my final year at the Elam School of Fine Arts. My flatmate and I are kind of boring, so that Saturday night we just watched a movie and went to sleep at like 10pm, so what came next I really wasn't expecting. My slumber was interrupted at about 2.45am, but I wasn't sure why, and I saw a lying there in bed and I could just hear this sound that sounded like the rubbish bins being dragged up the drive, and I was thinking, is it rubbish day? Is my flatmate getting the rubbish bins out? What's going on? And then suddenly I realised it was like Sunday morning, 3am, so I got up and I looked outside my um, French doors, and there was nothing that could prepare me for the devastation outside. A good half of our picket fence, Heritage Zone A, was now squashing most of the plants <laughs> in the front garden and the car that had done the job had fled the scene. Now there'd been this really big out of control party on our street that night and it was kind of still going on and it was still pretty crazy. And it was pretty obvious that that was where the car had come from. I mean, where else could it have come from really? So we're wandering around on the street in our days in our pyjamas and shit, just trying to figure out what to do. And I'm like, maybe I should call the police. So I got on the phone and called the police, waited around for another hour or so. They never turned up, so just went back to bed and somehow managed to get back to sleep. So the next morning, we walked out onto the street to survey the damage, and we ended up meeting several neighbours. And one of them sort of tells me, like, oh, yeah, yeah, nah, that guy down the street, the son, he's just turned 21, so his parents went off to Waiheke for the weekend and just let him have his party. And he was like, oh, but they're good people. They're really good people. Don't worry, man, they'll sort you out. So I was like, oh, well, I guess it'll be all right. You know, they're obviously pretty rich, so they can probably afford to pay for the fence. And so since it was my mum's house, I gave her the number of the people when she gave them a call. And she talked to the mum, who was a um, fairly prominent woman herself, and she sort of was like real reluctant when we mentioned paying for the insurance deductible or whatever it is. It was just a couple of hundred bucks. But as soon as we mentioned that like the police had been called, she was like, oh, all right, I'll pay for your fence. So it seemed like it was just all going to go sweet after that. But the next day I went to work at the library, and I was work that's where I used to work. So I was working this late shift, which went on until 8 p.m. And I was feeling, you know, about as chill as I possibly could. But then I get this text from my flatmate at about 7pm and he's like, oh, I just talked to your mum. The husband of the guy, of the, the dad of the dude whose party it is, has refused to pay. He says we can't prove that the car came from his party. And I'm like, what the hell? And by the way, this guy turned out to be a prominent New Zealander, or rather the brother of a prominent New Zealander. And like all prominent New Zealanders, he gets automatic name suppression. <laughs> 
And yeah, he could easily afford to pay for the fence, but he wasn't going to, so whatever. So when I got home, my flatmate told me he'd made the sign, and I was like, dude, what kind of sign? And he's like, oh, I just got some firewood that I was about to cut up, and I spray-painted, thanks, number 31, on it. <laughs> Numbers have been changed. And he put that, like, sort of propped up in the fence hole. And he left it there for about 20 minutes before he kind of, like, thought better of it, took it inside, chopped it up, and burnt it in the fireplace. And I was getting really angry at this point, so I found some chalk that I had, and I went up to the skid marks that the car had left, like, on our verge, and wrote, follow these tracks to find the culprit. And those tracks went straight to that guy's house. Oh yeah, and also, one of our neighbours that morning, they also told me that, like, the last time this kid had had a party, like, probably his 18th, like, the riot police got called, so... Obviously, he's not a very good neighbour. But anyway, after all of that raging and sign-making, we decided just to like go to the video shop, get some snacks, you know, chill out, etc. But when we got back, my elderly German father was waiting outside, and he's looking like pretty concerned. And he goes, what's all this about a sign? And I was like, oh, oh I don't know, what sign? Oh, yeah, I know nothing about a sign. And he's like, oh, the husband of that lady called, and she said, he said something about a sign that blamed them for the fence. And I was like, oh, news to me. And then all of a sudden, the devil himself pulled up in his car, a Volvo. He starts yelling at us and getting all up in our grills, trying to step over the fence hole. He's like, you've crossed the line of stupidity doing this. Rah, rah, rah. You don't know what you've done. And I'm like, get off my property, you rich cunt. <laughs> and the closer I get, sorry, I know no swearing, but you can bleep it out. <laughs> The closer I got to him, the more I could smell booze on his breath, and he was clearly drunk as hell. And he's like slurring his words, and he's yelling in my dad's face, I'm a reasonable man! I'm a reasonable man, Dieter! Can't you see I'm a reasonable man? And my dad replies real quietly, real chill, Yes, I can see you are a very rich and powerful man who is used to getting his way. <laughs> and I was like, whoa, go Dieter! But, you know, I can't say I behaved as well, I just mostly swore a lot. And then I got on the phone to the police just to dob in his drink-driving ass, you know. I'm like, this guy's just drink-drived up to my house. He's yelling at me, yelling at my dad. He's in his 70s, man. What is this? And then, like, he noticed that I was on the phone to the police, so he quickly got in his car and drove it back to his house, you know, very sly. And at that point, my next-door neighbour arrived home, and I told her what was going on. And it turns out she is friends with his wife. And she sort of sighs and goes, oh, God, has he done this again? And starts telling me about how he's got this big drinking problem and his wife's going to leave him because of it. And I'm like, oh, that's good information. <laughs> so he came back without his car this time, all ready for another round, and he starts telling us, I'm going to take everything from you. I'm going to take your house. I'm going to take your cars, because my flatmate's got these classic cars. And he's just like, you know, really trying to get to us. And I just say, you're a drunk. That's why your wife's leaving you, isn't it? <laughs> And he just didn't have much to say after that, to be honest. <laughs> and then the police showed up. But um, one, there were two cops that turned up. One was like an older guy, and he sided with the guy. And then there was a younger cop who totally sided with us. And I think it was probably a tactic to calm us down, but he got us both back to our you know, respective residences, and we all sort of chilled out. But my real downfall that night was that I live-tweeted the occasion. <laughs> yeah, bad idea. The next day, my neighbour dropped by while I was talking to the guy from next door, this, like, teenage dude who lived next door who saw the whole thing and wanted to punch the guy in the face, basically. And he rocks up and says, Mate, I saw your tweets and I'm suing you. I'm suing you for defamation. And I was just, like... I was actually pretty freaked out, to be honest, you know? Like, I was pretty on edge at this point, not really sleeping. 
So I consulted like a lawyer dude that I knew and he was like, yeah, you can't really allege that someone was drink driving without proof. So I deleted the tweets. But then came the private investigator. The private investigator arrived on Wednesday and he said he was being paid to find out if the car came from that party. And he said that if he could prove it, the neighbour would pay. Of course, you know, he never actually proved anything despite spending a lot of time examining the skid marks. But what he did find out from talking to all the neighbours on the street was that everybody else hated this guy as well. This one old lawyer dude, a duty solicitor guy, he stopped at the fence hole to have a chat one morning and he said, he's a bully and a wanker and he doesn't pick up his dog's shit when he walks it. <laughs> and, you know, that made me feel pretty good, like neighbourly relations. So, like, since it was pretty clear that they were actually never going to pay for the fence and there was no point even trying to get them to it, my flatmate just put the fence back up himself because he's pretty handy like that. But strangely enough, we noticed that it was actually missing two pickets. A neighbour who walked past that day, and the elderly father of a movie star, no less, told us that he saw a guy getting beaten up in the early hours of the morning of that, the night of the party, right outside my bedroom window. And I have no idea how I slept through that, but somehow I did. But I feel like that guy was trying to do the right thing and, you know, come clean, but the guys were smashing him to make sure he didn't. But that's just a theory. Anyway, I think one of those dudes stole the pickets as some sort of sick trophy. But then this other neighbour, this lady who walked across the street, noticed that we were missing some pickets, so she got some out of her shed and was like, I've got these if you want them. And they weren't quite the same shape, but my flatmate whittled them down and eventually they matched and the fence was as good as new. Well, as good as new as it could be, it was actually pretty old already. So um, two weeks after that, it was the um, 2011 general election, of course. I worked as an issuing officer on election day, which was pretty rough, to be honest. And I also had my final grad show at Elam that week and it was pretty much completely ruined. I couldn't even enjoy it. I just walked around like a zombie just in a daze, like what use is art in a cruel, harsh world full of unethical people? <laughs> yeah, and the whole thing like just felt like the most extreme episode of Neighbours of War you could imagine could absolutely imagine and it severely traumatised me. Like I couldn't sleep for ages. I was like Every time a car went past, I was like running to the window to check it out. Like we decided it was a blue Subaru that did it. I don't know how we decided that, but that was, that was the theory because a lot of those douchebags from down the road like to drive Subarus. <laughs> like this kid, man, he's such a dick. All he does is just drive up and down the street. Like, you know, I don't know. I don't even know what to say about him. But a friend of mine actually knew him and apparently he was tattooing meth pipes on people. So sounds like a real winner. But anyway, after all of that, that was like the most interaction I'd have with my neighbours like the whole time I'd been living there. And it was actually really cool because I met heaps of people. And that lady who gave me the pickets gave me a garden gnome as well. And <laughs> I didn't really want a garden gnome that much, but I took it just out of the goodness of my heart. So like my neighbour's son and his like rich boy pea dealer looking mates kept trying to intimidate us for like maybe a month or so afterwards. Like... One time they had this truck and they were doing burnouts outside our house. Another time they, um, they actually knocked my neighbour's letterbox off the fence thinking it was mine because we share a fence. So the letterbox was theirs and they smashed it off. And that led my neighbour to actually go down and have a word with them, which was nice. And yeah, I guess I won in the end because about six months later they moved. Just to the next street over, but still they moved. <laughs> and that's what matters. And as far as I know, my neighbour and his wife didn't break up in the end, despite his drinking problem. I think it was probably like the fact that the whole saga was just so batshit insane, that's probably what kept them together. And they'll probably be together forever for now because of that. 
And yeah, that old lawyer still walks past every now and then, and he often utters his favourite catchphrase, another day in paradise, eh, boys? Another day in paradise. And that's Hearn Bay. Thank you. Thanks to Eli for sharing his story. Our speaker, Deb Kendon, escaped secondary school teaching to become a brain for hire and pirate. She currently works as an instructor for the New Zealand Army. Here's Deb's story. So a couple of years ago, I moved to the West Coast to take a teaching job. And at that point, I didn't know much about the coast, really. I'd, I mean, I'd been there once before when I was training with the Army to deploy overseas, and they decided that Greymouth was the nearest thing New Zealand had to a small war-torn Pacific island. <laughs> uh, so, so my expectations were pretty cautious, and, and I thought I'd prepare, and I watched world's toughest cops and world's strictest parents and Louis Theroux gambling in America. And... Um, <laughs> I thought, oh, maybe it's going to be quite seedy, so I bought a really strong bike lock, you know, like marine-grade stainless steel chain and a, a padlock that would stop a bullet. And, and in the end, nobody stole my bike. They didn't even try, but they stole the lock. Um, now, now, obviously, I had to find somewhere to live, and I like to live a bit away from my job, you know, a bit of work-life separation. So I looked on the map, and I thought this little suburb thing north of Greymouth would be okay. There's a little place called Runanga. And you know how towns have those fiberglass things, like Cromwell's got the big fruit, and Oakuni's got the big carrot? Well, Runanga's got a coal cart. Not, not a fiberglass one, just a coal cart. And most, most of the t uh, houses in the town have a coal cart as well, which I thought was kind of surprising because they're about 250 kilograms. So how you smuggle one out of a mine is a mystery I never solved. But anyway, Runang is a sort of town where you've got houses with a giant hole in the weatherboard and a sky dish on the roof, and you've got to swerve to avoid the sheep that run out of the long grass in front of people's houses on your way to work. It's not far out of Greymouth, it's only about 8k, so the same distance as Remuera to the CBD, but there's a, a sort of mental distance, like if you go from Runanga into town, people will offer you a bed for the night. And there are, there are so few phone lines that people give their number like Dobson 2095 or Taylorville 5190, and I just ended up giving mine as Hell 7027. Um, there's not much there in Runanga. Like, after the disco ball got blown out of the tree in the Easter storm, there were really only two things to do. Like, just sport and spy on your neighbours. No, really, you're, you're expected to keep tabs on everyone. And since I spent most of my time in school PE like this, um, it really only left one thing to do. And I could look through my curtains at the neighbours and see them looking back at me. <laughs> And they waved. <laughs> and, and one time I got a wrong number and I went like this. Is Carol there? Oh, no, sorry, wrong number. Are you sure? Um, yeah, I'm quite sure. Well, do you know what her number is then? Uh, no, sorry. Well, do you know what street she's in? Um, no. Um, so anyway, my house had a window above the kitchen bench, uh, which looked straight into my neighbour's backyard. And since the sun came straight in the window, you'd be blinded with the sun reflecting off the kitchen bench. So somebody had put tint film, mirror tint film, over the window. So I had this perfect setup to just watch the neighbours. And it was this constantly changing parade of tenants in the house across from me. 
So first there was this rather nice Bogan family, but they were, they were a little cut above. They were upwardly mobile, aspirational Bogans. Um, so, so they started filling the backyard up with these markers of Bogan prosperity. First, they replaced the dead car with a flasher dead car, and then you got the barbecue, and then there was the para pool, and then finally there was the trampoline, which I think they got for about 8.50 from someone down the pub. But anyway, it was a natural selection trampoline, so none of, the, none of your fancy ones with the net and that sort of thing. There's, there's no pads, so you can get fingers trapped in the springs, you can get hair trapped in the springs, and it was on an angle so you could bounce people off. And, and there was a hole in the middle of the mat, so if you got it just right, you could bounce someone straight through and into the ground. Um, so they only lasted a couple of months before there was this collection of coastal businessmen. And they'd stand around in the backyard with a stubby resting on the pot belly discussing some sort of grey market money-making plan. And they always had these trailer loads of coal without tarps over the top of them. And I wondered about until I figured out you don't have time to put a tarp over the top when the coal's slightly stolen. Um, so there was one plan that I saw them cracking um, in the back one day, and I think I must have come in halfway through because it felt like it needed a few key details to make it make sense. And as far as I could work out, it involved trying to rent a goat or at least buying a goat and then trying to return it under the Consumer Guarantees Act. <laughs> and, and the only thing that scuppered it was when they decided that the Consumer Guarantees Act doesn't apply to goats. Um, Anyway, about this time I was invited to be a member of the Runanga debating team. They're quite proud of their Labour heritage down there, because Runanga was the birthplace of the Labour Party, and don't listen to what anyone from Blackball tells you, it was Runanga. Um, and they've still got this big old miners' hall with workers of the world unite plastered across the front of it. So the annual May Day celebrations are quite a thing, and they can last up to a week depending on how much you drink. Um, and part of this is a show debate against Blackboard. Now, I'm not quite sure why I was picked. I mean, I'm not exactly a union firebrand. I'm not even a socialist. The closest thing I've got is a Shea Shadbolt T-shirt. Um, but anyway, I mean, I ended up having dinner with these two card-carrying communists to discuss our debate plan. And one of them was the director, or one of the directors for the 1974 Commonwealth Games film, and you can spot his bit where it starts railing against the exploitation of the athletes for the amusement of TV viewers. So, so he was sitting there wearing his beret and he inspected all my badges before I was allowed into the house and then immediately made me sign an anti-asset sales petition. <laughs> And the other one was planning to open a museum of Runanga and Labour history that wouldn't scare the horses. Now, quite why you want to take a horse to a museum, I don't know, but I wouldn't be surprised in Runanga. <laughs> anyway, after discussing our debate over some pesto pizza, it was only the sight of the stag's head on the wall and the bare floorboards and the rain coming through the gap in the window that reminded me I was still in Runanga. I have to say, though, communists make excellent coffee cake. Anyway, after that, I had another set of neighbours, and this time it was a middle-aged couple, and they were always shouting at each other like EastEnders on steroids. You know, they'd, I'd be coming home, and they'd be crashing through the door and slamming things and opening windows and shouting at each other, and she was an old slag, and he was a worthless old bastard. 
And it was kind of amusing in itself, a bit like catching the end of Home and Away before the news. But one day I came home and they weren't shouting and immediately I thought, oh my God, do I ring the domestic violence helpline? One of them killed one of the other ones or something, you know. And then the man, he starts pulling this couch out of the back door and, and he gets a sledgehammer and she just starts laying into it and he's smashing away. And then the woman appears in the back door and I'm thinking, oh God, I've got to call the cops. And for once... I couldn't hear what they were saying, and I'm thinking, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God. And she walks up to him, and she grabs the sledgehammer off him, and then she starts laying into it too. <laughs> and they destroy the couch. And I thought, well, at least they found domestic harmony in the end. Um, and then the last family, the first thing they did was they cleared out the backyard, and they installed this 44-gallon drum in pride of place in the middle of the backyard. And they'd have... Somebody in a ute pull up every Thursday, Friday, weekend with a tray full of driftwood and tyres and scrap wood and they'd fill this drum up and set it all on fire and they'd just stand around it just looking at it like some sort of right, very proud of their fire. Anyway, one night I came home and I came into the kitchen and there's just this vaguely apocalyptic orange glow reflecting off all my cupboards. And I look out the window, and there's these flames and just clouds of smoke coming through my window, the flames going up to the height of the garage. And I just see these people sort of sitting on their barbecue table looking at the fire, going, that fire's effing hot. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And it was about then that I decided to move out. <laughs> so I moved back to Christchurch, and immediately I actually missed the choir because nobody in Runanga does anything between 10 p.m. and 7 a.m. And even the boganest of bogan neighbours, they'd have their stereo off by 10.30 on a Saturday. Um, and I miss being able to wander out into the middle of the road and talk to people. I mean, half because it's the only place you've got cell phone reception. But it was nice to go out and have a chat. And... I miss being able to wander around and see the contraptions, like the dude who couldn't be bothered calling out the glazier to put in a cat door, so he built this little ladder so the cat could climb in the window. <laughs> yeah, in, in my new place, people don't wander out into the middle of the road. And they just have a normal house and a normal family and a normal job and a normal garden and a normal routine. And it's painfully normal. It's a bit boring. <laughs> Thanks to Deb for sharing her story. Our speaker, Robin Murphy, is an artist and writer based here in Tamaki Makoto. She's recently back from a year away in LA. Here's Robin's story. So I want to like steal my opening scene from Mulholland Drive when um, Naomi Watts is walking up to her aunt's apartment building and she's like got this super dopey grin on her face and she's like kind of like disbelieving and naive and it's all really overacted but it's like totally my face as I'm walking up to what I thought, well I hoped was going to be my first flat in LA and um I just, I felt it. I was like, this is so it, because it was such a cliche. Like, it was this beautiful building that was like, it was like mission style and vine covered. And like, at the corner, it had a sign that said the Afton Arms and like gothic lettering. And it was just like so cheesy that I was just like, yes, like ye oldie, I want it. And um, 
I had been like sleeping on my friend's couch and just totally uh, abusing his hospitality and patience by getting him to drive me to the succession of just like shadier and shadier sublets across the city. And I was like, this is going to be it. And so he drops me off and I'm walking up the steps and there's like little fairy lights everywhere and like um, tropical palms and um, you could like I get to the raw iron gates and you can hear like a fountain and like music playing out of everyone's apartments and I'm just like so stoked and I'm standing there and one of the residents like comes up behind me like obviously a bit creeped out that I'm having my super cinematic like Naomi Watts moment uh, and like peeking through his gate and so I tell him that I'm there for like a flat viewing and I give him like the address and everything and he very kindly points me not inside but to the like shabby pink stucco duplex next door and (laughs) so I'm like super disappointed because I like there were photos on Craigslist you know and I was like well like I'm also really desperate at this point though so I'm like well maybe they just put the photo on Craigslist for like context so that you like knew where it was. Like I'm, I'm willing to be like genuinely like gullible at this point because I'm totally sick of sleeping on a couch. And um, so I take it and I'm glad to take it, you know, like, cause it's just like, it's, it was dire. It was very dire. It was getting to the point where I was thinking I was going to have to sleep in this woman's one bedroom apartment while she slept on the couch. And it was just like, not good options. So anyway, the room that I'm subletting, the girl had, instead of putting up curtains, put up all these saris and like scarves. And so it was just this kind of being swaddled in this strange like fabric pod. And I would sit in there and I could hear these like amazing noises coming from the Afton Arms next door. And like I'd hear people practicing, like, being, like, a lounge singer, and I would hear, like, these intense monologues. I have no idea what was going on. I hear someone say, the, like, the same thing over and over and over again, and then realizing that they're practicing their lines, and I'm like, I'm in Hollywood. Like, it was so good. And, because it was in Hollywood, but it was, like, it was nowhere near where Mulholland Drive is set. It was, like, way back from Sunset, and it was kind of, like, behind the strip mall that was Old Western-themed. And, <laughs> and it was called Gower Gulch, And it had, like, a Denny's in the car park, but then also, like, two blocks down, there was another Denny's on the other side of the road, which is, like, apparently important in L.A., because, like, the side of the road. I don't know, but it was just a weird, like, it was buzzy. It was, like, a half-residential neighbourhood, but, like, the Walk of Fame kind of trickled down nearby, and it was just, like, everything was dirty, but it felt like it was special. And, um, yeah, I I would hear, like, at night there would be, like, parties that would turn into this huge shouting match between my building and their building it was like this kind of animosity and then like the Super Bowl happened and we were united for like one moment as everyone was like screaming together and I think we won but I have no idea and um and it just had like this pull like I felt like I was like living next to a black hole like I just wanted to like I felt like something important was happening and I like would walk past it on my way to the bus and get this like momentary movie set feeling like it like when I would see someone at the supermarket wearing sunglasses and I'd be like I know that you're someone but I don't know who and so I got into like a fit of like intense googling one night which is like I'm kind of prone to like the last one was about like missing people in uh, American national parks which is like really good if you google it's like a conspiracy um but 
Anyway, so I found this LA Times article about it and I was completely vindicated because it's just like this super like magic, but like cheap and weird magic. And um, I thought that it was a hoax at first because it was just like too, too weird. Like the reporter starts it with a description of walking in for a brunch and into the building and having seeing one of the residents washing blood off the walls from a stabbing the night before and then just going to brunch anyway. And it's just like... All right, so it turns out that like it, it just kind of like the whole building has been like a like this kind of allegory for everything else that's happening in Hollywood at that time. Like it was built exactly in the golden era and it had all of these directors and actresses and actors living there um, because the studios are really nearby. But it also had this amazing myth that apparently the whole building had been built entirely for the purpose of Joe Kennedy to have an affair with Gloria Swanson, who was like a starlet who lived upstairs, which is like completely probably not true. And she's like totally denied it that she even lived there. But it's just like, yes, Hollywood. And, um, and then, so like during McCarthyism, when there was like a huge red scare and they were convinced that there were like communists hiding everywhere, which I'm glad that we've got like a communist theme running through the evening. It's great. Um, so the Hollywood 10, who were like a group of screenwriters and directors who got accused of promoting communism in film, and they, they had like these trials and they had like witnesses, like Ayn Rand was one, and she uh, said that someone was definitely promoting communism because they depicted Russian people smiling in their films. <laughs> so good. And so anyway, they were like, they were this group of accused and they would meet in the Afton Arms. So that's just like, yes, because like not only does it have a Hollywood history, but it's like my Hollywood history, like Pinko history. It's like, yes. And then like, um, then the uh, Los Angeles Free Press was run out of the ballroom for a while until the publisher got found out storing explosives in the basement, which he claimed were purely for the purpose of practicing the art of alchemy. And then, so like in the 70s, the building manager renamed it the uh, Happy Malaga Castle. And he was like, um, so he ended up becoming a like very prominent uh, weirdo, basically. Um, he was like a satirical anti-Vietnam War protester. His name was General Hershey Barr. And he would, I'm, this is like, I... I know that I'm like really gullible at this point and I'm being like Naomi Watts, but that's true. And um, he would pamphlet Hollywood Boulevard in like a military uniform with all these badges and then like plastic uh, jet planes coming off him. And he would hand out these pamphlets and he called like um, uh, Reagan was President Ray Gunn. And it was just like this amazing, like bizarre, um, like total street theater performance art though. And anyway, he was the building manager. Um, and then as kind of the, you know, like, we go like anti-Vietnam War protests, yes, 80s, lots of coke. And so it became really well known for like really hectic parties and a lot of drug use. And it culminated in uh, Halal Slovak, who was the original guitarist from Red Hot Chili Peppers, ODing in his apartment there. So like by this time I'm like reading this article and like totally freaking out at the ghosts that are happening next door to me. And... Um, and then at the time that the article was written, though, it was like the 90s, and like it had been kind of tidied up by a manager, and then I just couldn't find like anything else. It just kind of peters out after that point. Like I found, um, I found some one-star Yelp reviews, which kind of took a bit of the shine off the magic. Um, 
And I found a really good like Flickr photo set of this like aspiring actress, like recreating its history, but like really cheesy. Like there's like photos of her like lounging across the fountain and like floaty clothes. And it's just like super cheesy. But of course that like sums up what Hollywood is now. And then also like really the only other stuff I could find, even though it's like allegedly so infamous, um, it's like whenever someone's got their like specific weirdo fan blog about one starlet that you've never heard of, it'll mention that she like lived in this building. Um, and then there's also like a special shout out to it in a post about how Marilyn Monroe lived at the end of the street. And she like lived right with her mum when she was a little kid and she like lived right opposite the studios, which I just picture being such a like head fuck as a child and it was it was like amazing studios like Columbia Studios it was where they filmed like Mr. Smith Goes to Washington and all this stuff but then it subsequently like became where they filmed like a bunch of teen shows like Full House and like um, The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air which was so beautiful because that like formed so much of what I thought of LA for so long where it was like it's the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air and then like Bel-Air as well became one of these kind of places to me because I would pass it on the bus and it's like these big like wrought iron gates and it says Bel-Air and I would like more than once heard a tourist like jab the person next to them and be like it's like the Fresh Prince Uh, and so it just kind of like I don't, it was just, it was a really bizarre point in time and I moved out after three months but I would catch the bus back through Hollywood um, like every day and it just gave me this like bizarre like it gave me deja vu to this kind of feeling of like everything being unhinged and like everything feeling very temporary and like as if I was kind of hiding out on a back lot or I was like living someone else's storyline and someone was going to find out and be like why are you here Um, but yeah that's that was my neighbor for three months and it was magic and I feel like I came close to like magic. <laughs> Thanks to Robin for sharing her story. Our speaker Amon Mara is an award-winning Wellington-based comedian. He's just completed touring his show Respite around the country. Here's Amon's story. All right. So between 2012 and 2014, I lived on Vogel Street in Mount Victoria in Wellington. Mount Victoria is like quite a wealthy area, probably because it's the only suburb in Wellington to get any sun. But um, And it's definitely like the richest area I've ever lived in. It has sort of decile 10 schools and $900,000, $800,000, million dollar houses, which I know doesn't mean anything in Auckland, but in Wellington that's really rich. And right in the middle of Mount Victoria is Vogel Street, which is this kind of like crappy, broken street with run-down houses and overgrown gardens and cracked footpaths, and it's mostly inhabited by students. And it's like the only place in Mount Victoria which is like that. And when I say Vogel Street, there was not a street. Vogel Street was 200 steps just going up the hill. And my house was at the very top, backing onto like this beautiful Wellington town belt. And because we were at the top of this sort of innocuous staircase, almost every day we would get confused tourists in our backyard asking us, like, is this the way to the lookout? And even though they'd walk past, like, my gate and my letterbox and my house before realising that they might not be in the right place. Um, The evening I moved into Vogel Street after carrying everything I owned up 200 steps from the nearest road access, I came across a guy called Colin who lived a couple of houses down Vogel Street, um, Vogel Steps. Um, 
Colin is this grey-haired, frail-looking man, and he was wheezing away, pushing this bike up Earl's Terrace, which is the nearest street to Vogel Street. And on the handlebars of his bike were these giant canvas sacks, just like stuffed full of stuff. And my first reaction to seeing Colin was just like, oh my god, can I help you? And so my flatmates and I lugged Colin's bike and these sacks up to his front door and we went home and looked out our window and we see Colin wheeling his bike back down the hill. And he did this like four times a day. He did this every day for the three years I lived there, just going into town and collecting stuff and bringing it back to his house. Apparently there was like rumors that he was fundraising for his church. I don't really know. But what I do know is that after helping Colin every day for a couple of weeks, you lose all sympathy for him. Like, Colin, you are bringing this on yourself and I cannot help you anymore. And that made me seem like a real dick whenever I was like walking with friends and I just like went past this guy that was obviously really struggling pushing this bike up the hill. Um, so that was Colin. Um, you know when you go on a date with someone and they just spend the whole time talking about their crazy exes and you know they're probably the one that has the problem? I think the same is true for landlords. Um, when, we first, when we first moved into Vogel Street, the property management spent the whole time talking about all their terrible tenants and how much money they were putting into renovating the houses and all of that kind of thing. And I should have known at that point that I would have had a really terrible landlord. Um, I read this article a while ago that said that property investors were complaining that the price of rents weren't increasing at the same rate as the price of the housing market. And my response is, I don't care about the complaints of property investors. <laughs> um, our landlord owned all the houses on Vogel Street, as well as about 100 other houses around the city. He was this sort of slumlord who was just extracting as much money as he could out of these properties and putting no work into them. He also owned the property management company that looked after these houses, which was really frustrating because they would tell you on the phone, oh, we're just trying to get in hold of the landlord so he can sign off this work. And you know he's right there in the office next to them. So this came to be a problem when about 18 months into my tenancy, the retaining wall between my flat and the flat next to us fell down and my path started collapsing into our neighbour's property. So we told the property management about this and they said, oh, we're just trying to get in touch with the neighbour's landlord to discuss how to fix it. And I said, we know that we have the same landlord of both houses and then they never responded to that email. <laughs> So for the next 18 months, I lived at this house, despite having been on Campbell Live about it, and nothing was done about the path. And eventually they started referring to it as earthquake damage, even though it wasn't, but I didn't have the energy to fight it. Um, the landlord didn't care about the house at all, because he had this, these plans to build these big apartments up Vogel Street, but there was one problem to that, and that was my neighbour Paul and his family. Paul's house was the only one on Vogel Street not owned by this landlord. The house had been in Paul's family for years, and it currently belonged to his son and daughter-in-law who lived in the floor above them with their kid. And it was also really, just as a side note, it's really funny like growing up next to a little kid and just watching them slowly grow up and never having anything to do with them. It was really nice. But that was just a side note. It wasn't even written in my sheet. Um, and they had no interest in selling it. And Paul was like such a nice guy. He did maintenance work on our house because he knew the landlord never did it. And he sh we shared a path and he took care of the path and it was really nice. And he lent us his gardening gear. And he was always really friendly and a nice person and like the perfect neighbor. Um, so naturally, Paul and my landlord like hated each other. They had this like really long and complicated history from when my landlord tried to buy Paul's house for the first time. 
sort of Paul laid complaints to the council about my landlord's lack of maintenance on their shared path, and the landlord left Paul in response to these vaguely threatening letters. And their relationship just escalated every time they crossed paths until it all came to a head. My landlord tried to run over Paul at the dairy at the bottom of the steps. So Paul yelled at him, and then the next day some police showed up, and my landlord had laid a complaint with the police about that. And then when they, the police talked to Paul, they ended up just shaking their heads and telling them, don't talk to each other anymore. So that was my house for another 18 months. And one day we received a call from the property company urging us to stay on as tenants for the next year. And as an incentive, they were only going to raise the rent $50 a week. <laughs> and the path was still broken and the house was gradually falling apart and there was no chance of any work being done to the place. So we're like, let's leave. So we left Vogel Street. Apparently the people who moved in after us left, a couple of, left after a couple of weeks and the house has been empty since then. About a month ago, I googled the property management name, see how they were going, and they've gone bankrupt. Um, hopefully that means my landlord is going broke too, but I doubt it because people like him get away with everything, and there's no three strikes laws for crappy landlords. I've moved to Newtown in Wellington, and I live near the Salvation Army, and sometimes I look out my window at night and I see Colin in a high-vis vest just looking through all the stuff outside the Salvation Army and filling up these giant canvas sacks. Thanks to all our speakers, Eli, Deb, Robin and Amon for sharing their stories. If you've got a great story to tell or would like to hear any of our previous episodes, visit us at thewatercooler.co.nz. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. This episode was produced by Roma Moreau, thanks to the creator and director Sarah Finnegan-Walsh, and a special thanks to the Basement Theatre and The Wireless for their continued support. I'm your host Joseph Harper. Join us again for more stories from The Watercooler.